1 Thessalonians, beginning at verse chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will for you in Christ Jesus. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we walk ourselves through this text this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is rich. We thank, we thank you that it is deep. We thank you that it is also clear and that you have expected us to be able to understand it so that we might know what you would have us to do and, and what, who we are to be and who you are. And so again, this morning, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that he would illuminate these truths to us, that we might be convinced of them, that we might live them out, that we might be more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of the glory of your grace, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we've been walking our way, or inching, as we said, through this fifth chapter of First Thessalonians. And we've really come to this area where we could say that he is dealing with conduct of the believer, conduct of the believer within the church, and our interpersonal relationships with one another. And so he started in the beginning of this chapter, as, as we started here, and he was talking about our relationships, uh, especially beginning at verse 12. He started to talk about our relationships, first of all, between we would call the sheep and the shepherds. In other words, between the leadership and those in the pew. And he says, there are certain requirements for your behavior for you, how you are to see them. You are to recognize them, to know who they are, to, to actually acknowledge them, let them lead, and also to, to have a personal knowledge of them so that you might be able to make that assessment. And then you are to esteem them very highly. And this point here is not because they're wonderful people, not because they have a great personality and they mess with you, but because you recognize the office in which they are executing is necessary and good for the church. And so you must be one of those who highly esteems them in love. And so you are to have a, a loving attitude towards them and to do loving things towards them because what? Because of the office. Not because of the man, because of the office. And then he, he pivots in the next part here and he starts talking about our relationships to one another. How are we to actually interact with one another in the church and as believers? And again, he is, he is dealing with these interpersonal relationships and he's going horizontally here. And he says, actually, we urge you, brethren, which means this is for everyone in the church, not just, not just the leadership, though it does include it, but every believer is to be involved in ministry of some kind. And so he says, this ministry that I'm about to tell you about is for all of you to, to be involved in. In other words, there's no exception clause here that, oh, except for me. And he calls us to admonish the unruly, in other words, there is a group of believers who are, who are in Thessalonica who are not fulfilling their duties, Christian duties. They had stopped working. They were maybe getting themselves into trouble. And he says, those ones, you need to come alongside and you need to say, what you're doing is wrong. This is what you need to do. There's, there's an attitude of correction here. It's not just instruction, but uh, admonition. Then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. There's another group within the church that are faint-hearted. They are, they are weak in their faith. And he says, you need to come alongside them and to, and to help them, to encourage them. You don't want to come alongside and, 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 and come down heavy on them because they're not, they're not in rebellion. They're not doing what they shouldn't. They're simply weak and they need to be encouraged. And so he says, there's a set of people you come alongside of. And then he said, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. There are those who are, who are struggling with sin. And it's not that they're in open rebellion because they're in sin. It's just that they keep falling in and, and they need help. And he says, hold them up, come alongside them, 
Be, be a resource so that you can encourage them in the word, that you can be there to be a, someone who's accountable, somebody who's in their life. And you'd almost see that each one of these gets more personal. And then he says at the very end, be patient with everyone because there's going to be sheep that are just who you're going to try to help. And they just, they just seem like they keep falling back in the muck. And you're going to get frustrated. And he says, be patient. Be patient. Remember how long it took you to get where you are. Give that same grace to others. And then ultimately, don't pay evil to one another. Don't be, do something harmful to someone who harms you, but what to seek that which is good for one another. In other words, when someone harms you, instead of you going back and doing something harmful, you are to do what? Seek to return good at that point. So this does not mean that everyone that has harmed you in the past, that you need to go hunting everybody down who's opposed to you, but rather as they do evil and harm to you, what? Return good. And so when there's an opportunity to do good to them, then do that. But this is, I just want to make sure that we're not thinking that we have to look up everybody who we think is against us and then go hunting to do good for them. But rather, this is in, in the moment that you are dealing with them, do what is good. Now, Paul now pivots after doing what we would call some horizontal teaching. He now starts to go vertical. And so he's been going through these verses really from chapter uh, verse 12 to verse 22, and he's going to give us 15 exhortations, and he, we've already seen seven of them. But he's now going to shift and he's going to have a, more of a, a vertical emphasis here. He's going to now want you to deal with your relationship with God himself. How does the believer, how does he relate to God? How is that relationship to look? And so he's going, to, he's going to have here three exhortations that ultimately point to our attitude, our inward attitude and how we are, our attitude is, or we could say the attitude of the soul, how we are inside as we worship God. And so he's going to give us that, uh, that vertical look and he's going to look at the, our duties to God responsibility of the congregation then to God. And it's interesting because he, he gives uh, these exhortations that he gave in these verses are, are really a triad of the most fundamental Christian responsibilities. It's interesting to note back in chapter 1 verse 3, we saw a different triad there, the triad of Christian virtue where Paul speaks of faith and love and hope. And now he, he turns to reflect the essence of Christianity in terms of how we are to live our lives, how we are to behave, and, and, and th these things are, these essentials are rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. Now, as each one of these relates to the inner life, and it does relate to the inner life, we are going to see through them that they are truly intimate and part of who we are, and that deals with that issue of our attitude towards God at that most basic level. Nonetheless, it's important to note that through this text, it's in the midst of dealing with the corporate body. He's going to talk about how to deal with prophecy later. He's, he's already talked about relationships. And so it's important to realize that this exhortation is, more, is also a call for what should be done as we come together in a corporate fashion. In other words, the best expression of these virtues will ultimately be what? As we come together as a church. We often think of our, our faith as being isolated and individual, keeping us from others. But also, we must recognize that this should be body life as well. Though it starts with the individual and it starts in the, in the soul of the individual, it should ultimately be the expression as we come together. So it's interesting. He starts, he's starting with, this is who you need to be as an individual. 
But in light of the context also, I want you to realize this should be what church looks like as well. This should be expressed as we come together. This is what our, our gathering should also look like. Certainly this is found in Paul's teaching, all through his teaching, where we are called to be those who are, <clears throat> excuse me, praying, those who are rejoicing, and those who are giving thanks. So as we come to our text this morning, he really is going to give us three attitudes that we must uh, express in order to be pleasing to God, in order for the church to be a place that is pleasing to God. And the first attitude that he calls us to here is to rejoice always. Rejoice always. Two words. Remember Jesus wept? Well, this is, this is the shortest verse in the Bible as well. It is just two words. Rejoice always. Now, if you're struggling <laughs> and things are difficult, this, thing, this command, which it is a command, it's a, it's a, it's a command, seems at best absurd and at worst just makes you angry. Rejoice always, right? Now, I can even understand if it said rejoice because I could do that once in a while, right? I could probably muster up a little bit of yay. But here he says rejoice what? Always. That's, Paul, that's just ridiculous. And yet, Paul says what? Do it. He says, you must do it. Now, we know this. If it's an imperative, which is a command, it means, number one, you have to do it. Number two, it's disobedience if you don't do it. Right? You have to do it. It's disobedience if you don't. And... If you're commanded to do it, you can do it, right? He wouldn't ever command you to do something that you can't do. So we want to unpack this a little bit because, I mean, first of all, Paul, Paul must be aware that life is not easy for the Thessalonians. He must be fully aware that they are having a difficult time. Remember, he, Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 1.6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's aware that they are under what? Tribulation. They're under persecution. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So Paul is not, is not actually unaware. It's not like Paul is writing in a vacuum and he's saying, be joyful, rejoice, without recognizing that there are life problems that are already exist for them. And so we know this. Whatever this joy is that we're commanded to do, and it is something that, that we're commanded to do always, which means, this is a temporal word. In other words, it means at all times. There's never a time where you're not rejoicing. He's not saying rejoice in certain, certain circumstances or at, at, at everything that happens, but every moment of every day. Every moment of every day, this joy is required of you. And we know this, because of the circumstances, it certainly cannot be based upon what? Circumstances. Because we already know that th there are things in their life that should keep you from what? Having joy. So what is joy? Simply, joy is defined as to be rejoiced, to be glad, to be delighted. It has the idea... Of, of actually having of happiness and well-being. 
At least secularly, that's the way the word is used. But for the believer, it's more than that. It is this. Christian joy is the emotion springing from the deep down confidence of the Christian that God is in perfect control. In other words, I'm going to read that again. Christian joy is the emotion springing from the deep down confidence of the Christian that God is in control. It is the deepest confidence of the Christian that God is in perfect control of everything and will bring about our good in time, our glory in eternity. So it is an emotion that comes from what? Looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to God for understanding that in his control and what he has promised us and what he has done for us. In other words, joy is not something that is, comes from our circumstances. It comes in spite of our circumstances often. Because it is not looking at the world around, but is looking to God himself. Now, we know this. Joy is what? I'm going to answer that question in a minute. I lost my train of thought there. So, well, that's unusual. Okay, so, so <laughs> okay, you enjoy that. <laughs> Not so good up here. So, joy is it's commanded. Yes, it is. Joy, where was I? Um, Joy is confidence in God. So it is, it is looking to his character, it is looking to who he is, and not to our circumstances. Therefore, it is something that we can all have. Now, this is where I was going. We know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. In other words, this is something that is produced by the Holy Spirit, this, in other words, you cannot have joy unless you have the Holy Spirit and it is produced by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the only way to have joy is ultimately to be under the control of the Holy Spirit, who then takes the word of God and his promises and reveals his character through the word of God to you so that you what? have joy. This is not something that you can muster up in your, in your flesh. You can't sit there and <coughs> crank it up and somehow get joyful. Because very often, and we've seen that joy comes what? In spite of circumstances. It's not something that is, is you're able to produce in yourself, nor does it mean that everything that you, that everything you experience is good and happy, but it means that because you are looking to the Lord and recognizing his control of everything, you can have that joy, that inner state of well-being where nothing gets you down. Now, it's interesting because what this automatically does, brothers and sisters, is this. You don't get to be morose. You don't get to be like Eeyore, all depressed. He's calling you here to be what? To live a life of joy. The Christian life is not somehow this very serious thing where we walk around and we contemplate and we look serious. We don't smile. We have no joy. We're just really, I mean, look at the world the world is awful. Everything's going to pot. The Lord's going to come. We've just got to get our fingers and just hang on to the edge until he returns. That's not what he calls you to do. He calls you to live what? In joy. He calls you to recognize God is controlling the world. God is controlling your circumstances. God is bringing everything about for your good and for his glory. 
And when you have that view, a view that can only be convinced, make you convinced by the Holy Spirit, then you have joy. And every time you sin and you get off of, away from God, and every time you take your eyes off of Him, your joy, what? Goes away. Now I'm going to say something that's just going to rock your world. If you're not in joy, you're in disobedience. You are in sin. Why? How do I know that? Because Paul commanded it. If you're not in joy, you're in sin. Because your eyes aren't where they should be. And you're not putting your trust in God. That was a bit hard, wasn't it? But that's the reality of what the Word of God tells us. We are to be joyful. Joyful amid suffering. The Thessalonians were. They received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's possible. And we're called and commanded to do it. Here's a list of a couple of things that we can rejoice about, things that we can ponder to give us joy. We can rejoice in the appreciation of God's righteous character. We can look at it even when we're in trouble and we can look at his, at his faithfulness. We can praise him that he is our strength and our shield. We can put our trust in him. We can praise God for his redemptive work for us. We start thinking the, about how difficult and how everything is. We go back and we say, look what I've been saved from. Look at, look at my future. Look what he's promised me. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is interceding for me. Thank you that you put everything in my life for my good. Help me to see what you see, that you're building me into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these circumstances are sent here not to harm me, but to help me. Praise God for the future as we come, as we contemplate future grace, as we are going to be glorified and taken to be with him. Thank him for answered prayer, for the word of God that he's given to us, that we might know him, that we might meditate on him. The privilege of fellowship even the proclamation of the gospel. These are things that as we look and we turn to God and we worship Him for these things, all of a sudden, what? There's a joy because this we're anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we would say this. Joy is, the, is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. Joy is, the distinguishing, is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. We look when Paul wrote this, and when he wrote about joy, you can barely find that word in Greek, secular Greek writings. It's always found in Christian literature. And in that day, they had a dark outlook, and how much more do we have a dark outlook now? How much has, has the world turned? Where we're now, and we've replaced symbols and now we put a skull and crossbones and death is, is seen through the world. People live in anxiety and fear and, and fear of the future and fear of death and all of these things. And disease, the loss of the financial system, fear of war. All of these drain people's joy. But for the Christian, he recognizes that everything is what? In God's control. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room just before he went to the cross, knowing what he would suffer, these things I've spoken to you, what? That your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. So the question then becomes, are you living a life of joy? 
Would you be characterized by that? Do you have a, a heavenly mindset that's seeing all things that are taking place under God's control? Are you more concerned about God's glory than your own personal comfort? Do you truly believe that all things work together for good for them that love God, for them who are called according to his purpose? We're called to. One writer said, the joyful Christian is more concerned about glorifying God than avoiding temporal difficulties. He thinks more of spiritual riches and eternal glory than he does any present pain or material poverty. Material poverty. Believers who think that will fulfill the command to rejoice always. Let us be those who are marked by joy. Well, Paul's not done. That's just the first one. He now moves on and he gives us a second attitude that we are to exemplify. An inner attitude of praying without ceasing. The word for prayer is a comprehensive term covering all forms of reverent approach to God. It covers prayer for, from submission to intercession, from thanksgiving and praise to confession to petitions. It's a general word for prayer. And it's a, it, it's, it's a, a term that speaks of approaching God directly. To approach him reverently, rever, reverentially, <laughs> approach God and coming to him. And I want you to listen to this phrase. Coming to God in prayer is the Christian's declaration of dependence on God. Okay. Prayer is the Christian's declaration of dependence upon God. Again, this, this, is, this is a command. We're commanded to pray. And so a lack of prayer is a Christian's declaration of independence from God. I don't pray if I'm not in prayer. I'm declaring, God, I don't need you. I, I've got this. And so we are called to pray without ceasing. So again, if he had just commanded us to pray, we could, get, we could go with that, couldn't we? Yeah, I can pray. But again, it's these little adverbs here, praying what? Without ceasing. That's just ridiculous. Who, who, who can do that? And yet, he commands us to pray without ceasing. It's kind of shocking, but that's what he says. Well, we know this. The call to pray unceasingly obviously does not demand that they engage constantly in the act of uttering prayers. God doesn't say to you, get up in the morning, get on your knees, and, well, fact is, what are you doing in bed? You should be praying, right? Right? No breakfast, no lunch, just, just, just pray. That's all you do. Well, we know that can't be true because we, we look at Jesus in his ministry. Though he prayed and he often went to places to, prayer, to, to pray, he also did ministry. He also did teaching. He also did traveling. He went on boats. Right? How about the Apostle Paul? He says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your love and steadfast in hope in the Lord Jesus in the presence of our Lord and Father. He says, I constantly was bearing in mind you, the same term. But then he says in verse 13 of chapter 2, for this reason we constantly thank God when we received the word of God which you heard from us. You accept it not as the word of men, but for what it really was, the word of God which performs its work in you who believe. So again, he's saying, I constantly do these things, and yet Paul was what? He wasn't praying all the time. 
He was giving thanks. But again, what was Paul doing there in Thessalonica? He was doing ministry. He was teaching. He was instructing. So he couldn't have been in, in, in this constant state of being on his knees and praying. So we know that the idea of pray without ceasing is not that you need to be what? Continually sitting in prayer. It's not something that you must be doing all the time. The idea here is the idea of always being in the attitude of prayer. Rather, it means not more than just don't give up prayer, but more, but more importantly that we are to be pervaded with the spirit of un- unceasing prayer. In other words, we need to be in a place and in the practice where we can always pray to God and also taking those short accounts to pray to him. In other words, as I go through my work, I can be praising God. As I'm doing, as I'm doing things, I need to be in a place, living in a way and with a mindset to be always what, lifting up prayer, praise, intercession to God at all times. So it is a lifestyle of prayer that comes from an attitude of dependence on God so that I am always ready in a state to pray and in a readiness to pray. So as I go, as I walk, Lord, praise, thank you for this. As I go to, to, to speak with some, Lord, give me what? Wisdom. Always sending up those prayers to him and always being heavenly minded. In other words, prayer is not limited by time and place. It's not, re- but, it is, but it is more about what? In the attitude of prayer. So it's not restricted to time and place. Now I'm not saying that there isn't a place for us because it's demonstrated in scripture to put time aside for prayer. But that is not praying without ceasing. That's praying for a period of time in in a time set apart to God in order to pray. But he says, actually, you need to be those who are continually praying as a lifestyle. Where this this is automatically where you recognize your dependence upon him. Moment by moment, praying. It keeps your confidence centered on God. Consciously relying on God keeps us from unconsciously relying on ourselves. The secret of uplifting of our hearts to depend on God does not mean we will become so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. Actually, it's the other way around. You can never be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And so he says, this is what you need to do. You need to be praying. So how do we do? How do we do with praying? Is our life marked by by a, a walk with God where we continually are communing with him? Now I understand there are times where our consciousness is going to be taken up. We're, we're driving down the road and someone cuts in front of us. We're going to have to have our mind on task. We don't want a bunch of Christians coming to church without hands because they started praying and forgot to watch out for the saw. But we do recognize that we but we do recognize that there needs to be a constant state where we recognize our dependence on him and we call upon him in all things. We need to have a growing dependence in our life. That's the mark of a believer who continually what? Grows in dependence on Christ for the Christian life and for for living. This grows as we grow. As we grow spiritually, this should become more of who we are. We must come to God not seeing him as a reluctant giver but as a gracious father. 
He's not someone sitting up there who's reluctant to give us good gifts to his children. He's not mean, but he's gracious. And he wants to give us those things that are what? Best for us. It's not a call to pray to get whatever we want, but a call to ask for what he has said he would supply, and he will do that. Sometimes it's physical things, but it's primarily spiritual things, wisdom, joy, peace, obedience. All of those things are ours as we pray to him, recognizing apart from him what? We can do nothing. So I would say this, Christian growth, part of Christian growth is mortifying self-reliance. Part of Christian growth is mortifying self-reliance. We need to continually recognize our dependence. Instead of being children whose who fight with their parents and try to say, no, I'll do this on my own. We must recognize that we have no power of our own and we must turn to him to enable us. We would also say this, if we're commanded to pray and be in it, then we can't abandon prayer. Prayer is not something that we just give up on. We can't just walk away because it's to be what? Our lifestyle. Well, he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And then he says, in everything, give thanks. This is another attitude that we are to have, to give thanks. Again, this is a, a command. It's something that we are to be doing continually, to give thanks, to express thanks, to express appreciation for benefits. And he says, we are to give thanks, or we are literally in everything give thanks. He's, this is, and he says, notice this, he says, in everything give thanks. He does not say for everything. He says in everything, but not for everything. In other words, we don't praise God for, for the ability to sin so that we can suffer the consequences so that we can see God punish us, right? We don't sit there and say, Lord, I just love injustice. But we can be grateful as we suffer injustice, knowing that God is going to produce something for his glory and our good. Now, I want you to think about this because this is, this is fairly profound. Being unthankful is the very essence of the unregenerate. Being unthankful is the very essence of the unregenerate. Romans 1.21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or what? Give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. That ungratitude is the mark of what? The unbeliever. in everything, in every circumstances in life. The other ones were, were, were at all times. Here is in every situation that we are to give thanks. The Christian should meet adverse circumstances in life, not with a spirit of toil and resignation, but the spirit of unfailing gratitude. Remember Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, right? They're rejoicing. Why did they rejoice? Why were they, why were they okay with that? Because they were grateful that what? They suffer like their master. 
right? Such an attitude is made only possible by what? The grace of God. You, can't, you cannot do this on your, on your own. We must realize, again, what Romans 8.28 8, tells us, that all things work for our good, and therefore we need to be thankful for all that God is doing and producing in our lives by the circumstances he brings. And again, we would say this, gratitude becomes another distinguishing mark of what? Of the Christian. We can sometimes find ease in giving thanks for good things. But how do we do when hard things come? Are we still grateful? Do we still recognize that these come from the hand of a good God who is only doing things for our good? Logic would tell us we can't be thankful in these circumstances, and yet Paul says you can be. Because as we focus on what God is doing and recognizing that all good things come from him and therefore whatever he put into our lives he did for our good, we recognize there's nothing that happens to us that isn't done by God for our good or allowed by God for our good. Therefore, what? We can be thankful. We can be thankful. This idea permeates God's, Paul's teaching. He says in Ephesians 5, 4, and there must be no filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of what? Thanks. Be anxious for nothing but in everything in prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. A call to thankfulness. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. Give thanks through him to God the Father. We must recognize that there are no circumstance, no circumstances can be detrimental to our eternal good. No circumstances can be detrimental to our eternal good. We must recognize that God is the ultimate causation of everything that takes place in our life, and therefore he is to be praised and to be thanked. You will find one thing in common with all people who are, uh, who are ungrateful. And that is pride. Pride absolutely suffocates the ability to be thankful. It simply is impossible to be prideful because when you are, pr and thankful at the same time, because when you are proud, you are thinking of what? You, what you deserve, what your rights are. And therefore you will always be what? Unthankful. Because you will always believe that you deserve more. You deserved better, you deserve something else. And therefore we recognize that God gives what? Grace to the humble but resists the proud. And therefore, we need to humble ourselves and be thankful. So we need to recount our blessings and to thank God for the things that he brings into our lives. We need to increase that sensitivity by, by giving thanks. Thanks for the little things. Oftentimes, these are the things that we just take for granted. We got up this morning in a house that was provided by God for us. We put on clothes that he gave us. We ate food that he gave us. We drove here in vehicles that he gave us. He, we had money for gas in the tank. 
He placed us in a church where we could come and meet around the Word of God. All these blessings are every day. We looked outside and the sun is shining and the heat is coming and the grass is turning green and we what? We have a tendency just to what? Walk on the grass, walk into the car, complain that the heater doesn't work like we'd like it to. Maybe that was me on the way to church. (laughs) But we have that tendency, right? Instead of saying all good things come from him. So let us be those who, who recognize the small things. Because believe me, they're not that small if you don't have them. Well, finally, he closes with this last phrase. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. This phrase applies to all three of these exhortations, to all of these statements. And so he says, here's why I gave you this. This is, this is why you should give these, exhibit these three attitudes. He says, for this is the will of God for you. Now notice this, as soon as he says, for this is God's will, he's indicating that this is not some human philosophy. A bunch of men didn't get together in a room and, and, and sit down and say, what's the best way for people to have a successful life on earth? What's the best thing that we can do? Oh, let's tell them that they need to be thankful. Let's tell them they need to be joyful. Let's, let's tell them they need to be dependent on God, because I think that will work. No, and Paul is saying, it's not my idea. These exhortations and this call, these attitudes are actually called, are, are what God has set forth. He, it's his revealed will on the matter. Now this doesn't exhaust God's will for them, but this is part of what he requires from them. This is God's gracious design and purpose for them. This is the atmosphere in which the Christian life is to be lived and then ultimately that attitude should be coming to church with you so that it, it gets in the potpourri of the church. Now notice this, he says, for you, this is the will of God for you, this is God's will for you, assures the Thessalonians that God's will is specific. It's an application to their lives. It's an application to our lives, literally into you. This is God's will into you, indicates that this truth that's stated is to reach out and become operative in them. The obligation is resting upon them to practice these things. And Paul says, church, this will of God needs to be operative in your life. These things need to be being worked out in your life. So often people are running around the world and they're looking for God's will and they're looking in some obscure place. What does God want from me? I don't know what to do. And we want to know if God wants us to cross the street. But God says here, spend some time on what I've clearly revealed to you. This is where you need to live. And when you're living like this, the details will take care of himself. But don't so spend so much time looking for some obscure will of God when it's right here revealed for you. Get doing what you know. Now it's interesting. He says in this last little phrase, this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And he says this, not only is Christ our pattern for our life, but he is the source. He is the source of our life. In other words, what Christ has done in redemption is he has purchased and and given us a what? A new life. You were once spiritually dead and now you are spiritually alive. You are now in Jesus Christ and now you are empowered in that life because of what he has accomplished for you. That is, you are in Christ. None of these things are possible if you're not in Christ. Through his work, we are now in him. 
And we would say this, this touches our inner motives because we are in Christ. The Mosaic law was strong in outward confirmation, conformity, I mean, but helpless to deal with human thoughts in the heart. And so what he is saying here is this. He is not just saying, the argument here is not, you must do it for God so wills. But knowing that it is God's will, you can do it. In other words, because it's God's will, because you have been called to this, because you are in Christ, you now have the ability to actually fulfill the demands that are made upon you because you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not demand that which he does not give the power to perform. So he says, here's the argument. Knowing that it is God's will, guess what? You can do it because you are what? In Christ. He's given you life. He's given you the power. He's given you the ability. And so it is possible to live in joy, to recognize our dependence and to be grateful because we are connected with this life in Jesus Christ and he wills that we do it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for this resounding challenge, this commands that we are to live in a way that is pleasing to you. And I pray that you would make us a rejoicing people, a people who live in the joy of the Lord, having our emotions and our sense of well-being not based upon our circumstances, but upon the very character of our, of our God. May we be those who continually recognize our dependence to live this way, and that we would always turn to you in prayer, and that ultimately we would be a grateful people recognizing that all good things come from our loving Heavenly Father. Make us individuals and a church that bathe in these things, I pray in your name. Amen.